I want to pray and, uh, and ask the Lord to be with me and with us as we dive into his word. Let's pray together. Father, there is so much to be gleaned here from your word. And as your servant, I pray that you would speak to your people, that your people would receive your word as it was intended, that they would understand your word, that you would use it to uh, encourage, you would use it to convict, you would use it to make us in the image of your son. Father, forgive the one who preaches, my sins are many, and you know that. Would you work in us as a body of believers for your glory, our good, and the sake of the nations, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. The title of our sermon is The Different Responses to the Infinite Value of Jesus. And in our text, you see different responses to the value of Jesus. And so with that, I want to start with this, and you're going to wonder why. Chinese rhinoceros horn cups. That's right. Chinese rhinoceros horn cups. The antique road show, which many of us know, saw one of its most valuable lots in 2011, a man said that he had been collecting rhinoceros horn carvings for decades and had a particular affinity for a certain type of cup. Going on to purchase the full set, the cups were made around 1700. It was an ornate collection, was originally purchased by the owner for approximately $5,000. The appraiser on the Antique Roadshow, his name, Lark E. Mason, gave the owner of these cups a significant margin when he appraised the set of Chinese rhinoceros horn cups at $1.5 million. So he bought them for $5,000, and they were appraised for $1.5 million. I'll take that return on investment every day. What makes the uh, Antique Roadshow interesting to the viewers, the un unexpected price an item might fetch when it appears to be on the surface of much less value? The greater the value, the greater the interest, if you've ever watched the show. But seeing the value in an object or a person can often be very deceiving, and that's how the Antique Roadshow has made its money. Who would have thought Chinese rhinoceros horn cups would be a thing? Apparently they are. This man's seller had no idea what the value of these cups were, and therefore he missed a fortune, let it slip right through his hands to the purchaser, the collector. In our text this morning, that Danny has just read, we see in the text Mary pouring out a bottle of what is extremely expensive perfume, estimated at today's rate, 
one year wage for a common laborer. One year wage. And she pours it on Jesus' feet and on his head, and she wipes his feet with their hair. Mary, in this story, is displaying the actions that she believes Jesus' value and Jesus' worth is way greater than perhaps others at the table. Judas, who will soon trade Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which is the equivalent of about $1,000. He reproves her, and he says, why are you doing this? We should have given this money to the poor. It is his spiritual blindness, the reason that he rebukes Mary for wasting money and wasting resources. In actuality, Judas has an idol in his heart, and it's revealed there in the text. The idol is money. And, and the Lord says, you cannot worship two gods. And so, Judas becomes like the man who sold the Chinese rhinoceros horn cups to the collector without a clue as to the true value of what he was doing. And he misses the real payoff. Now, here's the twist. Perhaps it's not just Judas who misses the true value. What if it's us? Even as Christians, not just as non-believers, are we not guilty ourselves as we get entangled in the affairs of everyday life to fail to cultivate a heart toward the greatest, most valuable being in the universe? Some of us, honestly, maybe all of us, might be a little bit more excited about tonight than we are this morning. Why is that? There's something in us that, that values wrongly what is supremely valuable. And we see this in the story with Mary and, Ju and Judas. We miss the value of Jesus. And in, not, in so doing, we don't just compromise ourselves for a small fortune, $1.5 million. But when we, when we misvalue Jesus, we lose everything. We lose everything. So look with me again. Danny has read it, but I want to read this again in, in John 12, 1 through 8. You can look there in your Bibles. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner for him there. Could you imagine? It's like, you raised my brother from the dead. All these people in Bethany know about it. You're going to be, we're going to have a dinner for you, and you're going to be the one celebrated Jesus and so all these people are coming, and we're going to celebrate you. So if I read on, Martha served, which would be characteristic of Martha, as we know, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a table. Notice that word, because I'm going to come back to it. He was reclining with him at a table. 
Now, in the Passover, this becomes even more important when we get to John 13. What are they saying when they say reclining with him at the table? I don't recline at my table. I recline when I get up from the table and go to my nice chair. Right? I'm going to explain that to you culturally in just a moment. In just a moment. Many... I mean, excuse me, not many. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Now, to me, as a guy, I don't even know that I like the smell of perfume. And so when I hear pure nard, I don't go, yay, I want that on me. But evidently, it was a nice smell. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was the anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, so the scripture is really clear here about his heart, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, listen to what Jesus said, leave her alone. It's almost like he, he looked up at Judas at that moment and said, back off, back off, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's look at this. So it's an important meal. Jesus is back, and, and we know that this is just days before he is to be crucified. Just days before. And all of these people have come. And Jesus is being publicly heralded as kind of a, a hero, a miracle worker. He's brought Lazarus back from the dead. And the Jews reclined at formal meals in the first century. This is an interesting aspect. And that's where I wanted to say, remember that word reclining at the table. The classic picture of the Lord's Supper is culturally wrong, and you probably see the Lord's Supper there. You see the picture, and you see the table. It's much like a table that we would sit at today, and all of them are on one side, right? That's not like it was, because they didn't have a table that was that high. They had a very low table like this, and they sat on cushions. Show the next slide. This would have been much more culturally like what is described. And this is why Mary could come and pour the perfume on Jesus' feet because he's leaning into the table while his feet are back. And she can come and have access to him and, and put the perfume on her feet and clean his feet with her hair. And, because in the other picture which was really just a rendition done years and years later, they wanted to capture the faces of all the disciples. And how are you going to do that when everybody's sitting around on cushions on, at a very small table? So culturally, it's, in, it's, it's wrong. What we see when we see the Lord's Supper, as good a painting as it is, it's not right culturally. This is more how the culture would have sat. And so... It goes without saying that Mary's dramatic gesture is astounding. While Judas objects, Jesus finds it very pleasing as an expression of devotion. 
Now, a word about the nard. Nard was a rare and precious spice imported from northern India. A pound of spice would have been huge and lavish. Its value, 300 denarii, which is what Judas said, which would have been roughly one year's wages for a day laborer. A whole year of wages she's pouring out. And so Judas says in 4-5, Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So Jesus says, He knew the value of what was happening, of, of what was in the perfume and what was being poured out. And this was Jesus' answer. He had two, really. And it's interesting because I bet the disciples were kind of, when Judas said that, I bet the disciples were like, yeah, that's a good point. Why didn't we sell that and give all that money to the poor? But Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And so what Jesus is saying is, this is a foreshadowing of what is about to happen. In just a few days... I'm going to be crucified on the cross. And this is foreshadowing for you what will happen. She should, she should do this now because it is getting me ready for burial. And then the second thing he says, leave her alone. You'll always have the poor, but you will not always have me. And what he's saying is, I'm allowing this gesture that Mary is doing because what Mary is doing is she's making much of the most valuable thing in the universe. She's making much of me. I'm God. You couldn't pour enough perfume. You couldn't waste enough money. I am the most valuable thing in the universe. No matter how much she pours out, it couldn't equal the value of what she's pouring it on. And you need to know, you need to see my value. And so if she lavishly pours it out, even then it wouldn't equal the value of the one she's pouring it on. And you need to see that. It's appropriate. The problem is, Judas, he can't see the infinite value of Christ. He's actually been in the presence with the other disciples, and he cannot see the value of the one whom he is with. And my thesis today is this. I don't think we do either. I don't think we see the true value of Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul said it this way. He said, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. It's like going over and looking into a mirror that maybe is smudged and smeared, and you get an image, but it isn't the real, it isn't the real thing. We're getting an image of who God is, 
But it's not face-to-face. It's not a clear, crystal, digital reception. It's very much tainted. And so, because our image of Him is tainted, our value of Him is lowered. And so, we must fight. As Christians, we must fight to see Jesus for the value, the supreme value that He is. We must fight for joy. It doesn't just come. We must fight for the joy and the satisfaction in God. As another has said so far better, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. But the problem is we're finding our satisfaction everywhere but in God. Matter of fact, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we probably go, how do I find my satisfaction in God? I'm not 100% sure. I believe that we are entangled, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.4, in the everyday things that entangle us. We need to be, this is, this is for First Baptist Chattahoochee. We need to be reading our Bibles. We need to spend time, even if, if today, and you're honest with yourself right now, and if you're totally honest with yourself and I could wave a magic wand, you get to go to heaven. But if you're not honest in this moment, it's the opposite. This is what I want to know. We believe this, don't we? And I know it's so easy to make people feel guilty here. But what I don't, I don't want guilt. What I want is for you to be satisfied in God. I want you to be overflowing with joy and overflowing with, with peace and love. That is not going to happen if we just come to church on Sunday and listen to a sermon. I don't care how good the sermon is. And I know that I'm not this guy. I'm, I'm this guy. But if you go home in between Sundays and you open your scripture and you spend 15 or 20 minutes reading your Bible and then you spend another 15 or 20 minutes and set a timer if you need to, just silently praying to God. Do you know what would happen in our church? I'm just talking about 30 minutes probably. Just 30 minutes alone with your creator, valuing him, just you and him. I think it would, it would make a huge difference, a huge difference. So it's interesting, you know, talking about this misplaced value. Um, Charles Meisner, probably never heard of him. I don't know that I had either until I read this. He is a scientific specialist in general relativity theory. Probably means nothing to some of you. And then some of my Georgia Tech guys are smiling like, oh, this is good. He says this, Albert Einstein, all of us know that name, skepticism over the church with words that should waken us to the shallowness of our experience with God and worship. The design of the universe is very magnificent. 
and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Although he strikes me as a basically very religious man, he must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. And they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that what, that's why he simply felt that religions he'd run across did not have proper respect for the author, the author of the universe. Do you catch that? He didn't have much to do with the church because he had looked into the heavens and he had seen the majesty of the heavens. And then he went to church and he heard a pastor talking about the God that created those heavens. And he thought, that guy doesn't get it. That guy, he ain't even begun to see the majesty of the universe and of the one that I have seen. And could you imagine if that were true? You would have little use for the church. The charge of blasphemy is loaded. The point is to pack a wallop behind the charge that in our worship, Services, God simply doesn't come through for who He really is. Another way to say that is in our worship services, God is unwittingly belittled. In other words, we're not talking about the real thing because He's so much, so much more. God is undervalued. God is seen like the Chinese rhinoceros horn cup. I'll sell it to the highest bidder because I don't know what I got. But what I have in him is the highest value in the universe. So, why don't we worship like that? Why don't we spend time alone with him like that? Do we just feel like we have these horn cups? Or do we see the true value of Jesus himself? Those who are stunned by the indescribable magnitude of what God is, has made, not to mention the infinite greatness of the one who made it, in those, there is a cry for the grandeur and the scope of worship to be enhanced. For the mind to be expanded and pushed out. For the heart to be inflamed. And for the will to be surrendered at the deepest levels to this God. If we have first to see him, then we savor him our hearts will begin to soar in worship. That's the worth of this great God. In an attempt to show you the magnitude of the grandeur of the Creator, our God, I have these 
slides. Scientists know that light travels at the speed of 5.87 trillion miles a year. You get your head around that, let me know. (laughs) Two, they also know that the galaxy of which our solar system is a part is about 100,000 light years in diameter, about 587 trillion miles. It is one of about a million such galaxies in the optical range of the most powerful telescopes. It has been estimated that in our galaxy there are more than 200 billion stars. Our sun is one of them. A modest star burning at 6,000 degrees centigrade on the surface and traveling in an orbit at about 135 miles per second, which means it will take about 250 million years to complete a revolution around the galaxy. Scientists know this stuff. Einstein saw this stuff, and they're awed by them. And they say, if there is a personal God, as the Christians say, who spoke this universe into being, then there is a certain respect and reverence and wonder and, don't forget, dread that would come to to those through whom we talk about him and when we worship him. We who believe the Bible know this even better. Isaiah 40, 25 through 26, look at what Isaiah said. To whom then will you compare me? Who who are you going to compare God to? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out of their host by number, calling them all by name. You know what he's talking about here, don't you? The stars. You know how many stars I just said there were? He has a name for every one of them. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Every one of the billions of stars in the universe is there by God's specific appointment. He knows their number, and most astonishing of all, he knows them by name. Those stars do his bidding as his personal agents. When we feel the weight of this grandeur in the heavens, we have only touched the hem of his garment. Job 26.14 said this, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? And so we say in Psalm 57, 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. 
God is the absolute reality that everyone in the universe must come to terms with. Everything depends utterly on Him and His will. All other realities compare to Him like a raindrop compares to the ocean or like an anthill compares to Mount Everest. To ignore Him or belittle Him is unintelligible and it is also suicidal folly. Judas does indeed commit suicide in the end. Did he somehow begin to see the great mistake of wrongly valuing Jesus? Like the horn cup seller who watched the new owner receive the estimated value of $1.5 million, he was overcome with regret. Judas had sold, not horn cups. Judas had sold God. He had sold the Savior of all men for all time. And he had sold the most valuable thing in the world for a thousand measly dollars. Ultimately, Judas's search for happiness through financial security, leaves him hanging from a tree by his neck, broken, depressed, humiliated, and finally dead. Underestimating the value of Christ is a deadly, suicidal mistake. Look with me back at our chapter in John 12, 9 through 11. Remember, I said in the title, different responses to the infinite value of Jesus. So chapter 12, 9 through 11, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, and this is kind of in closing, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of many of the many of him on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus so what they're saying what the text is saying is now these Jews have seen that God Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and so they're saying we need to put him to death too. Not only do we need to put Jesus to death, but we need to put Lazarus to death too. And here's, here's the thing that stuns me. When the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death, it revealed an astonishing refusal to allow their beliefs to be changed by undeniable facts. That man was dead. And now he's alive. And so you're a Jewish leader. What do you do? You would think you'd go, amazing, that guy must be God. But what they did was go, let's destroy the evidence. 
Let's get rid of Lazarus too so that these people won't believe in that Messiah. And my point is this. Our sin is irrational. Our sin will take us away from God. Our sin will keep us from valuing him rightly. So you ask the question, or I do, why would you not, why would I not, not just you, why would I not value him like he should be valued? And the biggest answer I can come up with is right here in their response. They saw that he was raised from the dead. There's enough evidence to believe that Jesus is the Christ. But they would rather get rid of the evidence. You know why? Pride. Economic security. Their own positions and value. And here's my point. To come to Jesus... You must first in your heart say you are, you are of ultimate value. All of these other things I'm chasing in my life pale in comparison to the value that is you, Jesus. And I will repent of my sin and I will turn to you because you are my only hope. I need you. I need you. Here in Jesus is the place where you will find the greatest beauty and the highest value and the deepest satisfaction and the most lasting joy and the biggest reward and the most wonderful friendship and the most overwhelming worship. So, in application, will you fight to see him? He says, those who search for me with their whole heart will find me. I've not met many people that scratch the surface of Christianity And find him. He's found with the tools of discipline dug from the depths with the whole heart. Will you run hard after him? It says that, do you not know in a race all run? Run in such a way that you should receive the prize. So, Will you commit? Will you really commit? I don't care if you're Sally's age or if you're 95 to knowing your Bible, to knowing your Bible, spending time in his word. And then I want to say this. Will you read other books that explodes your soul to the glory of God in the face of Christ. And if you're like, I don't know what other books you're talking about. I got one for you. Just an application. Read Desiring God. 
Read the book Desiring God. It will explode your soul to the glory of God. There's few books like it. And you may be sitting there and you're thinking, but I've got this crazy schedule. I've got crazy responsibilities. You don't know, Clint. Your, your kids are all grown and out of the house. You know, you got time to burn. Or you may say, I've got all these other goals, you know. I've got all this stuff that, that are keeping me from this. And you know what you're saying when you say that? It's a value proposition. It's the whole text. When you say, I'm too busy, I don't have time, you're saying, I value these other things more than I value what is ultimately most valuable. You have got to cut out time in your life to cultivate a deep relationship with your Lord. And if you don't do that, the end result, I'm not going to say, is that you don't go to heaven. If you're a believer, certainly you'll go to heaven. But it may be, you'll, you'll just live in light of the God that you know. And you know what the problem with that is? If you're not studying and praying and reading, you know how big your God is? He's about that big. I want a God that blows my mind, that expands my soul. You're not going to get that if you don't cultivate your heart for him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Mary, for her seeing your value. And putting it on display for us to see and even talk about 2,000 years later. God, would you help us value you rightly? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.